And welcome back to the Ben and Tony podcast, where today we're joined by Lyle McKenney. Now, Lyle has had a very eclectic career with stints as a major label musician, a professional poker player, an early stage startup founder, an employee, and now a writer. This conversation is raw, personal, and vulnerable as Lyle shared with us his experiences being the father of M, his daughter who has cerebral palsy, his signing and touring with a major record label, and plenty more. What an immersive conversation. We first heard Lyle's whirlwind story of signing his new metal band to a major record label, back when groups like Papa Roach and Korn dominated the US music scene. That story took a wild turn after 9-11, and then we started hearing about Lyle's intense experiences having a daughter with cerebral palsy. Lyle's sincere writing about all of these topics is incredibly moving and has allowed him to connect with parents from all over the world and other people as well. I'm sure you'll be able to connect with him too. And we're very, very excited to be sponsored by the Making Lemonade Fund, Gen Z's fastest growing fundraiser, supporting COVID-19 relief, pediatric cancer, and a bunch of other great causes. Get behind them over at makinglemonadefund.com and sponsor made by our very own Jesse K. Ben, it's great to be here. It's really great to have you. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you. Um, I think, you know, one thing that's really stuck out to me in, in your journey is the fact that you were part of a band. Um, let's start there. You know, describe your time in the band. What was the band and how did you get into this? It was sort of haphazard. Uh, I was going to college at UC Santa Barbara. I was in, I think, I remember I was in a chemistry class with a guy and he played guitar. I don't, I honestly don't remember the guy's name. I can kind of picture him. <laughs> it was so long ago, but um, he was like, yeah, we're jamming on the weekend or something like that. Some other musician showed up. There was a guy named Jake that was playing drums. Uh, he pulled me aside. We had a good time just hanging out for the day. He pulls me aside at the end and says, hey, I'm, I've been playing with this other band and I really like them, but their bass player is terrible. I play bass. <laughs> and so eventually he said they, they kind of moved on from that guy. It was a couple of weeks later and I showed up to practice and we sort of hit it off. They had some like original songs written already. Um, I kind of lent my ear towards them and tried different things. And then we started writing more and more. Eventually it was probably six months or so later we played like our first gig. It was just a bunch of college guys, you know, like typical story that you hear, just like college guys get together. They all, you know, jam out and come up with some new stuff. The thing that was different about these guys were and a bunch of them had grown up together, so they knew each other. And they were all like very, very motivated to like make a real go of it, which that was exciting to me because I had thought about that for a while going like, I want to really pursue things as a musician. Um, and we were kind of in that genre of, uh, at the time I really hated this genre name, but it was called New Metal. It was like N-U with a U metal. I remember those days. I know. <laughs> So we, we kind of hated that genre name, but that's sort of what we got lumped into. So uh, the band, it, so the name is, is Pressure 4 or 5, like the numbers 4 and 5. And the name was basically kind of a joke that stuck. Uh, we, played our, we played our very first show. I think it was under the name Pressure Shift, I believe. Mm -hmm. We might have changed it at that point. I don't remember. But 
it was something like that. And then we were like, eh, we didn't really like it. And we said, what if we just go with pressure? But then there was a band in LA called The Pressure. And we're like, let's not confuse so anything. You're, you're telling me that you rebanded. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so but we, we, on our very first show, we <laughs> met this guy, Joe. And he goes, he goes, uh, hey, would you guys be interested in like someone DJing? Like that was cool then when you had like a guy who could scratch or like make noises yeah. with records, right? And we're like, yeah, sure, come hang out. Um, one of our, we had two guitarists at the time, one dropped off because he went to go pursue a career in teaching actually. Um, and then, so Joe is in the band, but he, I don't know why he offered to do this because he hated it. He hated <laughs> being there. <laughs> and like, so the joke was that we either had four or five people and he would just like not show up to shows or practice and all that. Wait, so, wait, so that's where the four or five from in the minute. Yeah, he would be <laughs> just like, where's Joe? And he wouldn't show up. But it didn't really matter that much because he was sort of just like, you know, the adding the noises and stuff. Eventually we said, hey, he, you know, he was a guitar player too. And we said, do you want to play guitar? And he said, yeah. And then he showed up all the time after that. So, <laughs> but so that's kind of where the name came from and it stuck. Uh, and that's, we kind of became known as that name around Santa Barbara and LA and just like played around California a lot. Um, some, some shows in like Arizona and stuff like that, but really just the West Coast. And, um, we basically got pretty lucky when it comes to actually signing a record deal. It was our um, our drummer's neighbor, like knew a guy kind of thing. Okay. Um, who used yeah. to, who like grew up in Santa Barbara where we were based and he was running a label and they were thinking about managing bands and they came and saw a show of ours and, and they were like, hey, would you guys be interested? We said, sure, did a demo. And then they shopped it around to people they know in the industry one thing led to another and we signed a record deal. It wow. was like, it happened, it took several months, but it happened relatively quick, but it was kind of like, to use like the startup, like vernacular, it was sort of a frothy market at the time, <laughs> right? Like, you know what I mean? It was like uh, the bands, some bands had hit it really big in that genre at that time, yeah. right? Like there was like the Deftones and Korn yeah. and yeah. some others that were coming up. Um, but, uh, and then our, our friends, we, we knew the guys in Papa Roach really well. We played shows together. Whoa, okay. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. That's okay. <laughs> all right. So you're playing all so, these local gigs. How did you wait? You, you, how did you know Papa Roach? Because firstly, Papa yeah, Roach yeah. takes me back. That's a cool. <laughs> what year was this, by the That's way? That's the time frame. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they, uh, yeah, it was, well, Sa Sacramento, they were from Vacaville, but it's really close to Sacramento. Um, and so they played a ton of shows there and they were sort of like a local band in Sacramento, but Sacramento scene was huge at that time. There was so many popular bands and a bunch of them that never really went on to like get signed or anything, but they just had this like, just like these really, uh, those big crowds that they could draw, just fans that were just super into it. Um, and so we ended up befriending some of the bands there and playing lots of shows there. Um, and it was a ton of fun. Um, we played played a bunch of shows with them and uh, some, I think we played one in Vacaville, but then we played a bunch of Sacramento and then we invited them down to play in Santa Barbara and things like that. So we were all just kind of knew each other and would help each other out, um, you know, and do, do, do different gigs. Uh, so they ended up, they ended up signing a deal with DreamWorks Records. And the funny thing is I only found this out probably eight or nine years ago, something like that. I was at a show in Sacramento with a friend of mine and uh, I saw this guy walking around and I'm like, why do I know this guy? And he's like, got like salt and pepper hair. And he, he just, 
I don't know, he just looked really familiar and I was trying to figure it out. And finally it hit me, I was like, oh, he was the guy that managed Papa Roach. He also managed this other band, Dredge, that we were good friends with, one of my all-time favorite bands, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and so I just, I was like, hey, do you remember me? And so we started talking and, and he goes, oh yeah, so we're reminiscing. And he goes, he goes, what happened to you guys? Like, you guys were supposed to go really big. And, and uh, he goes, he's like, he had a percentage of whatever we earned, which I had no idea. He got some finder's fee of like, I don't know, 30, 40 grand or something like that for getting okay. us signed because we signed yeah. his DreamWorks records as well. Um, which is so funny because I didn't know that for like over a decade. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And like I, our manager never like, told us yeah, or something. Or well, like, I mean, bassist for a hella cool band. I mean, this must have been a pretty interesting time. Like, what's it like being on the road in a band that's, you know, about to be signed, rolling around California together with Papa Roach? Yeah. So, um, the road is interesting. The road is, uh, it's, it's one of these things where you're on the road and you eventually get a little burnt out and you're like, God, I want to go home. I just want to sleep in my own bed, you know, <laughs> just like have a good night's sleep. Uh, and then you get home and then you're home for like a week and you're like, God, I really want to be on the road. I miss the road. And it's like, yeah. you're never like settled. Right. Um, but it is, a blast to play in front of a live audience it's like it's really like nothing else i've ever experienced um i think i even wrote this in a piece recently about it was uh, i remember it was a guy from uh, uh the glitch mob who described it as like jumping out of an airplane uh, which i've actually never done but i imagine it's <laughs> probably really similar. like that that feeling of like sort of euphoria or like you know mm-hmm. you're just outside of yourself in a way um playing in front of like a big crowd um, and the funny thing is it's also different where like, if you play in front of a very small crowd, it's almost more nerve wracking than if there's a ton of people, it, they just become like a sea of people. Yeah. Uh, um, and, it, but it, and then the energy is just like hard to describe, you know? Um, so that was, that was a ton of fun getting around from town to town, not necessarily as fun, especially when you're like, you know, don't have a ton of money and you're just stuck in a van with but a that's a lot of, of it right yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, i'm curious to know like the the and you mentioned that like you were you gone from being a student to the, at that point were you doing the band on the side or you kind of you dropped out of school and also like on the money part like yeah I, i'm just people i mean first off just getting signed by a record label is a dream that many many people yeah uh, musicians on the world have but i mean it's not it's not the end of course right like did you did you get an advance and then you guys were getting paid that way were you guys like holding down part-time jobs just i'm just curious about like the logistics of it too yeah so when so when we signed on with those managers they sat us down and they were like okay you could do it you could do this two ways you can do the indie route so they owned a rec, an indie record label right so they had a bunch of indie artists and they give it they don't really give them any money they just support them and do some promotion and stuff right yeah and they go it takes a really long time but you could build up like a nice audience over time and you own more of the rights to your stuff and things like that or they're like you can go big or go home and do the major label route right <laughs> and we had, and that was like papa roach had just like started to like come out in like their single hit radio and they just like took off like a rocket ship and we were like no we want to do that like you know like that's what you do right like you know mm-hmm. it's easy so um so so we we signed, we ended up, that's why we decided to pitch it around to different labels. Um, and the market was really good at the time. And DreamWorks was the first to bite. Uh, and then it, it was like, 
I hear this from startup founders too, where it's like you get like one VC firm to commit and then it's like others started to come, right? It's like social proof, right? So it was like DreamWorks and then Maverick Records, which is like the Madonna owned label. And then it was like Warner Brothers and um, what was the other one? Geffen, I think, or Interscope, that was it. Uh, So we got a bunch of offers after that. I mean, these these are some significant names. Yeah, they were all like the big names, right? They were all throwing some sort of contract yeah. at us. Yeah, yeah, like it, you know, and they're all trying to like wine and dine you and things like that, right? I remember the, the one, like the Maverick Records one. The guy who's the 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 A and R person, which is sort of like your rep at the company, they find new talent, right? Um, he was good friends with our one of our managers. Like they grew up together, went to high school together, or something. And he was just like, I really want you guys on my label. He had signed Disturbed. I don't know if you know that band. Yeah, of course. They, they I did, like I blew up really big. Okay. So he was like whining and dining us. He got us backstage to a Deftone show and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Nice. You know, and, and we're like, okay, you know, it's interesting. But we ended up going with DreamWorks because... You're saying you're playing it cool is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, it's like the you're like, well, let's like get the free dinners and yeah. whatever else. <laughs> but, um, but eventually we decided to go with DreamWorks because they were the first, right, to like go, okay, like we think you guys you know, have, have like some talent and, you know, a legitimate shot of making it. So we decided to go with that. Plus we had friends around the label and we really liked our, and our guy there. So, yeah. And we were sort of like, I mean, now looking back, it didn't feel this way at the time, but looking back, it felt like it, it was like, we were basically doing the same thing Papa Roach did, <clears throat> like almost like trying to recreate what happened to them. Uh, Cause we used the same, we recorded the same studio with the same producer. Yeah. Um, granted, you know, we had a different sound, slightly but it was it was um we were okay let's take this template that worked really well and see if we could do the same thing replicate the success um and we could get into why there wasn't not nearly as much success which some of it a lot of it was out of our control but if you want me to go there yet <laughs> I, no, definitely let's definitely do that uh, i'm also curious just before that though is is like it sounds like a little bit of the wild west out there right that's just all these artists and labels trying to sign one another um is is that still the case what does the kind of landscape look like now oh yeah so it's changed a lot since then um it's kind of crazy it's so not that many years ago a few years ago i actually found our record label contract in some bin i have in my garage and i started reading through it because i was curious I, i and at the time they signed us to a deal that was i mean it's kind of insane i signed it um because it was a two album, it was two album guaranteed deal, right? Um, And then it gave them the label, not us, gave them the option for like three more and a greatest hits album. And I'm like, we're nobody. We're signing this thing that has greatest hits written on it somewhere. Like that's insane. You know? Um, And you know, a lot of artists signed those things like Papa Roach signed probably a really, really similar deal. And so they got, basically you can get stuck in those deals um mm-hmm. and yeah you're just sort of like plodding along they're still going to fund the next record because they're like well we'll get a decent return and maybe they'll have a huge hit and they'll like break out success again you know mm-hmm. um granted those guys never really had that again um but they still can play a show and pack a house you know and um but it took them a while to get through their contract and so now they're done with it now they're independent but it took you know, 15 years or something, a long time. Um, And so now they can go play shows, you know, on their own dime or whatever they want to do, release records on their own dime and then make 
all the profit, right? Um, but this is also, I mean, like you're, you're expecting over that period, it's probably going to be, you know, at least eight years to have five albums. Yeah. At, le at least. Yeah. So you're actually totally. basically, you're, you're owned by someone through your peak. In, indentured servitude. Yes. Yeah. 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 You don't, you don't have any say, right? Like, yeah. There was a great documentary by, um, God, I can't remember what it's called. I think maybe it's called Artifact, something like that. But it's the um, uh, Jared Leto, the actor who's in the band 30 Seconds to Mars. Mm -hmm. He put together this, this uh, documentary. He self-funded it and everything about basically them going through this, like with that band. Because they had like just enough success that the label's like, no, we're going to, we'll, we'll give you a little advance for the next record and, you know, see how it goes. And they were just sort of stuck. Um, it was really good. It was, came out I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, something like that. Um, so it's kind of, if anyone's interested in more on that, um, it's really fascinating. And, you know, for the artists, it can be frustrating. It sort of can like stifle creativity, right? Because you just feel like, God, I have like no control. I'm like, you know, I like started this thing to sort of like, you know, stick it to the man and be creative and do whatever, you know, and now it's like the man is still controlling yeah. me, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, and it's interesting now to see you know, not just within music, but all kinds of creative endeavors, right? Like the creator economy is such a like buzzword these days, but you know, it's so different. You know, the, all the, you know, the gatekeepers have way less power than they used to, you know? Um, like you said, back then it was like, oh my God, we signed a record deal. We like, we made it, whatever that means, right? Um, nowadays, it's like, do you really want to sign a record deal? Like you have so many other options. You know, and yeah. if you can, if you have the talent and you can grow an audience on your own, you know, and own that audience in some ways, then it's like, why do you, why would you go with them? You know, same for like book publishers and things like that too. Right. So it's really changed like very dramatically, you know, when we were, when we were first, when we were coming out, I remember we're doing interviews and people asking about Napster, right. Cause it just started to kind of be a thing that people were talking about. And I think that was when uh Lars the drummer from Metallica was like suing them or something it was right around that time and so we got a lot of questions about that and of course at that time we were like oh, we don't care we just want people to hear our music yeah, yeah. right um we we weren't making that much money off of it you know um but yeah, I guess so like yeah. no it's, I think it's interesting I mean I guess the question that everyone has to tackle now and that they're actually able to tackle instead of having to go through someone is like should we disintermediate ourselves by putting someone else in the middle and you can see the successes of people like what Chance the Rapper, who basically got large on SoundCloud, um, yeah. going straight to consumer now. Um, I, I wonder what the kind of best route is if you're someone who's like, you know, just starting out now. Well, it's so hard because it, it's like, I, I, I mean, I did it. I, I understand the allure, allure of like getting the record deal and it gives you some sort of like prestige or it's like a, okay, yeah, there is, I have some value to the world, right? But not only that, it's money. Like, you know, it's like you need to like put food on the table, right? And at the time I was, I had dropped out of school by that point. And because I was like staying up all night trying to build our website, even though I didn't know what the hell I was doing um, and things like that. And just trying to create new music and we were recording stuff and trying to like get in front of the right people. Uh, and so school was like, I don't know, fourth or fifth on my list of priorities, probably even lower, <laughs> you know? So eventually I was just like, okay, I'm going to just drop out for a while, much to my parents' chagrin, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
and then I remember I took a job working for a company uh, that distributed the bass guitars that I ended up playing. Um, and they're based out of the, uh, the building where uh, the Seymour Duncan building, I don't know if you know Seymour Duncan, they make guitar pickups. That wasn't making very much money, you know, and it wasn't like I could do that remotely. You know, uh, I was doing sales, um, but at the time, like, you know, people weren't really working remotely. So it's not like I could do the band on the side, like and <laughs> do it as a professional. Right. Yeah. So, so then what do you do? You, like, we didn't have a ton of money saved up and you know, none of us did. So it's, you need that advance of money, you know? Um, so I understand why, you know, I've heard the same now being in the writer, the writer's circles and people talking about making books. And you know, I remember attending a talk with someone, I, I, I don't remember her name, and she released a book on her own, you know, but she also is like a marketing executive, like a VP of marketing and has plenty of money at her disposal to fund that, you know? But if you think of someone who's like a fledgling artist who's trying to like create the next best novel, good luck. <laughs> They're trying to work a day job. Yeah, I do it at the same time. I was gonna say, I feel like uh, both writers and musicians historically kind of like outsource the marketing creative, sorry, the marketing commercial aspects of their, their job to like a record label or publishing company. But because they did that, they, they kind of like lost some leverage and you just kind of have to put your faith in the record label execs who may not have your best interest at heart or the publishing companies that may not have your best interest at heart. Because the internet has allowed people to have more choices, it also kind of puts more of a burden on the musician or writer themselves to do the marketing, right? You might be like, oh, I don't need to go yeah. through a label or Simon and Schuster, but that means I have to like then start doing marketing myself. And you have platforms to do that, but it's like a whole other job to be done that you theoretically could have outsourced in the 90s. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a lot of work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and not only that, but it, it's just so many ways you could do it right there's so many platforms uh that's what i'm kind of struggling with now to be honest with my writing um it's like where do i put this you know like i have my own newsletter and i'm trying to grow an audience there but how do i get it in front of new people it's really hard i i think this is that question is like the trillion dollar question i think everybody particularly yeah. everybody <laughs> like us who's a creator i guess and i, I feel like I, I use that term so somewhat reluctantly like everybody's yeah. trying to figure that out but that mad rush to figure that out is, it's a worthy pursuit. So I think yeah. we've got, got some ways well, and, to And then the other thing is just the proliferation of just entertainment options is insane. Like you think yeah. back 20 years ago, like when we were coming out as a band, you had those gatekeepers. So it was sort of like these giant filters filtering out like all this shit essentially <laughs> to like get you some like good artists or whatever. And you could argue whether or not they're good, but you know, they're like, okay, we're going to take bets on these artists or whatever. And we're filtering it through this giant machine we have and then delivering it to the public through traditional media. Right. And then that starts to change. And now it's like, you think of like, if you just sit down and you're like, okay, I have an hour to do something. What are you going to do? You have like a million choices, right? Yeah. Um, how do you, as a creator, become one of those choices? It's, that's very difficult. It's and so I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. I was saying, yeah, I have like, you know, a few hundred, like 400-ish people that are reading my stuff every week. In some ways, I think about that and go, that's kind of crazy that every week, I basically like kind of performing in front of 400 people. Like if I did that in real life, that would feel awesome. I could be like, oh my God, there's 400 people here. Really? Like yeah. paying attention to me, right? But in in the world that we're in now, I'm like, that's only 400. I want it to be like 
400,000 or something, you know, but, it, but, and then the other part of that is, I know there are probably, there's hundreds of thousands of people out there that would like what I'm doing. So it's like, how do I go like, oh, hey, excuse me, uh, you might want to check yeah. this out because I think I like it. You know? Where did the band go? Did you, did you release any hit singles? Where did it go? <laughs> yeah, so this is, uh, this is the thing I'll write about probably in my second book. <laughs> oh, yeah. But talking about my, my, my uh, newsletter, so I call it just enough to get me in trouble. Part of that is because, like, and where can we, where can we off, find it? Just enough to get in trouble oh, yeah. dot substack dot. No, you can just go lyle.substack.com. Easy. Easy. Like first there we are. Yeah. I call it just enough to get me in trouble. And part of it's because of that, you know, eclectic career thing you read off of, like all these different things I've done. I've done a bunch of things. I know a little bit about a lot of things, sort of like a generalist, right? But then also I think of it as this. So like with, with my band, you know, we see our friends just having this huge breakout success. We see some others starting to do well too, um, that like we start to meet different colleagues, I guess you could call them or other bands. Um, and so it's like, we're on this path, there's this trajectory, right? Where we record our album, we do, we record a video, like a big fancy video at Universal Studios. Yeah, you know, sounds like fun. And it's like, okay, everything's lined up, right? And then 9-11 happens, like two days after our single hit right, radio. Literally. Three, but Whoa, yeah. okay. two nights before that, we saw our video on like MTV2, like the hotel we were at. So and we're, you know, so it's like, you, that's like the moment you were going, okay, this is happening. This is real. Like we're on TV. That's insane. You know? And then two days later, two days later, it's like my phone's buzzing on the hotel room and it's our buddy, Jason from Santa Barbara. And he just says, turn on the TV. And we're like, what the hell does that mean? He like left a message because I was sleeping. <laughs> he goes, turn on the TV. So I turned on and of course it's like what everyone saw that day. Right. And you know, at the time I'm probably, I don't even know how old I was. 24 or something, 23. It doesn't hit you right at first, like what that means. Like we're way on the other side of the country. We were in Portland. We play, had just played a show and we were about to play that night in Seattle. You don't grasp what it means right at first, right? And I think a lot of people could probably relate to that who, who experienced it or just weren't yeah. like a little kid at the time, right? Even though you're not in New York, the, you know, the effects of it have, have they, probably, they still linger to this day. Like, you know, every time we go through an airport, right? You know, but obviously that was like prime promotional period for us. And really nobody cared about a new band coming up at that point. Right. Whereas, you know, we saw, so another uh, band that we were friends with was Hoobastank. I don't know if you remember them. Yeah. <laughs> they had like, yeah. Yeah. so excited by that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm going to Like definitely more mainstream than a lot of the <laughs> rest of us, but their album I think came out probably like in late November or something. Right. So it was like wow. a couple months later. And just that difference, that made a huge difference, just that amount of time, you know. So it was just really unfortunate timing. That's all it was, you know. It sounds so surreal. So, like, what do you, I mean, let's say you're regrouping as a band and I guess your manager and your team, promotional, whoever it is at the label, like, on September 12 or 13, do you guys, like, sit down and say, hey, we need to reschedule our promotion? We, like, turn off the promotion? You know, like, because I'm just thinking to myself, if you had all this marketing planned, what do you do when it's September 12th? Like, do you, do you turn it off? I, yeah. It's a tough challenge. Well, and then I, I think what was, t you know, I, we definitely had those conversations. I remember thinking that that day going, you know, I need to call our managers and figure out what the heck we're going to do here, right? Being the new newbies and we, you know, we don't know what we're doing. You know, it just felt like, okay, this big important thing way outside of our control happened, you know, that's going to change 
life for everyone. It feels like we should probably change something, but we heard from our managers and the people to label, it's like, well, all the wheels are in motion and you know, all these things are going. The album wasn't actually coming out until I think it was October 2nd. So it was like three weeks later or something. So it was like, well, that's enough time. But I think it's like, I think a lot of us were just sort of in shock as to how huge of a deal 9-11 was as far as like, you know, how had the lasting effects of it, right? And it's like the collective consciousness, especially of people in the US where yeah. we were, right? That how that just rattled everyone like to their core, right? Even though we were thousands of miles away. Yeah, I mean it had a massive impact on all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And I mean I'm I'm really curious, I mean, from just being in the industry, what was the kind of long effect of nine eleven on music? Yeah, so I think it was a few things. So it's funny because I, I think about this, I thought about this before and I don't, I mean, I think that was really unfortunate timing. It wasn't the only thing that happened with us, right? Like, cause we had a two album deal. We never did a second album. It was a lot of, at that point. So we had the first album, we had, we had done the Ozfest tour before, you know, 9-11 and then kind of like initial promotion. Then we did a bunch of different tours. Like we were on and off the road for the better part of like a year and a half. Had a blast, met a ton of cool people, but Nothing ever really took off. They released another single, but it didn't quite have the marketing dollars behind it, that kind of thing. So, you know, we did good in some regional markets, but not, not like exceedingly well. So then it came time, okay, we're done touring. Let's regroup. Let's write some new music. We had kind of been writing some stuff while we were on the road a little bit. And so it's like, okay, let's head back into our studio back in Santa Barbara and just try to record some demos and things like that. We would send them to the label every once in a while. And it would always be like, yeah, cool guys. Yeah, just keep writing. And we're like, okay, they don't like it, you know, and that happened a few times. I remember, you know, but I don't think it was necessarily like they didn't hear a hit or that kind of thing. It was the market had already changed. Napster was becoming way more prevalent in those kind of things. Uh, LimeWire, whatever those other ones were, right? File sharing in general um, started to become a really big problem. Some of these bands in this genre, the newer ones were coming out and they weren't taking off as much. So that's there were a what bunch I, of bands yeah, that got signed. Interesting you say that because I was kind of thinking like I, I've never listened to new metal or I have like Papa Roach, but I, I'm trying to think about the emotions that that would be needed for people to really associate with new metal and how that kind of collective emotion across America changed and meant that it was like no longer aligned with whatever new metal represented. Yeah, I think there's something to that because it's very aggressive music, right? I wish I could like think of the bands that kind of came after that, that did go big, but I think it was, it was less like heavy music, right? Yeah. I can't think of it off the top of my head. It was, I just remember a lot of the bands that we knew that got signed later on. And maybe some of them had like a one song that did pretty well, but they sort of fizzled out. Uh, there was a bunch that I know like got big deal like we did and just never did anything. I mean, part of that is just the way music, works in in the sense that like especially major labels right it's kind of it's like vc firms where they fund a bunch of companies and hope like a few take off right that's the same co concept and and then those make up those make up the losses on the other ones right it could have been just that but i do think there was a sort of like mood change in the country and music in general so to to shift more to different types of music because it's never really gotten like i would say aggressive like heavier Rock music has never really like flourished like in a big mainstream way since. You know, granted, there's always the, big, the the some few bands that do really well, but you know, 
they're far and few between. But this, there hasn't been this like big movement like there was with that type, that style for a while there. So yeah, and then you know the music industry started changing as far as who they were going to fund, uh, and so it was like it was pretty clear that they didn't want to spend more money on us in the immediate future. Uh, and so then I remember we had lots of discussions about like, okay, well, what do we want to do with our music? And like one of the guys wanted to go like way heavier. And I was like, that's not, they're not going to give it. We're out of a deal if we do that. You know? And so <laughs> yeah. I wanted to go more, more, a little bit, maybe a little bit more mainstream or accessible to try to like do the next record. And um, yeah, it just like never really worked out. I ended up joining a different band with my brother actually. It's way more like artsy type of rock music and would never have been signed by a major label or anything. But uh, so we kind of made a go of it and never really went anywhere. Yeah, so it was interesting time, but yeah. Really interesting, yeah. So was it during your time in the band that your daughter Em was born or was that following? No, not even close. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so so this was, like I said, 9-11, so it was like 20, almost 20 years ago now, crazy to say out loud. Um, <laughs> but no, my daughter Em, she was born uh, just over two and a half years ago. So yeah, my first my first child, pretty late in life for me, I guess, um, in my 40s. There obviously a lot happened in that period, but I know that, you know, this is something you've written about a lot. Um, it's obviously, mm -hmm. you know, very raw uh, in, in your writing. I mean, people should definitely check out Substack to read about this. But, you know, what was the effect of, of her birth on you? And, you know, what was it like becoming a dad from being, you know, previously a, a stud and band member? <laughs> Yeah, I think for many, many years, I thought like, okay, I'm not going to have kids at all. I don't know if I said this earlier or if I, before we started chatting, but I was married back like after the band. I got married to my girlfriend. Who, we were boyfriend, girlfriend while I was in the band. Uh, and so we ended up getting married, eventually got divorced. We never had kids, thankfully, uh, together. Yeah, then I met, you know, my now wife through online dating. <laughs> we never would have met otherwise on OkCupid. You know, we... We dated for a few years, eventually get married. And, um, you know, we had talked about having kids. So we finally, you know, went, okay, let's try. Uh, she has uh, she has a daughter from previous marriage, my stepdaughter, Sarah, who I'll include in some of my stories here and there. She's 11. She'll turn 12 next month. So she's quite a big age gap between her and M. So uh, yeah, M was born in June of 2018. The pregnancy was just like totally normal. My wife is like, crazy healthy. She's a dietitian. Like that's what she does for a living. Uh, so she eats amazingly well. She exercises all the time. She's like the epitome of like good health. Right. And I, I think she's maybe had two glasses of wine since I've known her. Right. So like, <laughs> she doesn't drink or anything. So yeah, so totally normal pregnancy. Uh, and there was no like reason to be worried about anything. Uh, I remember we, the night before and was born, we're hanging out with my parents, actually at the house that I'm at right now. They, my dad's like, yeah, sometimes these things should happen fast because it was like the next day was the due date, right? The actual due date that the doctors give you, which no kid's ever born on their actual due date. I mean, very rarely, right? It's just sort of a guess. You like take, okay, here's when we knew she was pregnant, like with a test and you extrapolate nine months, right? It's not a very inexact number, but so it was like the night before the due date, my dad's like, well, you know, sometimes these things can happen quick and we're like, eh, it doesn't really happen like in the movies where it's like the water breaks and you freak out and you rush to the hospital, right? That's basically exactly what happened to us. So really late at night on, or it gets very, very early in the morning on the actual due date, 
my wife, you know, she starts getting contractions and, um, and they started to get really intense. Uh, and I remember calling the hospital and saying, you know, just because I was timing all the contractions like you do. And that was sort of my job. And, you know, it got to the point, I think it, I forget what, the, what it is. It's like how often they happen, how frequently they are, how long they last, right? So I call the hospital and they say, yeah, you probably should make your way over. Like they weren't alarmed or anything. And we live like five minutes from the hospital. So I go out to the garage to, to pack up the car and, you know, get all our stuff together. And then I hear Allison just like, Lyle, just scream. And I was like, oh shit, what's going on? So I rushed back in the house with like one shoe on and uh, she's like her water had broke like all over like the side of our bed. And it was like, okay, crap. And like my stepdaughter was asleep in the other room and we had called my mother-in-law to come just hang out at the house while she sleeps. Yeah. And I'm like, I call her, I'm like, where are you? We gotta go. And she's like, I'm right around the corner. I'm like, okay. So then, you know, I helped my wife into the car and we rushed over to the hospital. And it was like, we got there and like 12 minutes later, Em was born. It was like very, very fast. It was like two or three Whoa. pushes and Em was out. Minutes. Yeah. It was, yeah. Like I remember looking at the clock in the car and then looking at it in the, in the room. And it was like 12 minutes. So super fast or like the medical word is precipitous, right? Um, very quick. So Em's born and they had talked about in like the birthing classes and all that type of stuff. And they said, it's important that, you know, the, the child is put on the mother, skin the skin, you know, and you have that like bonding moment, like right after they're born, right? And so first the, the doctor takes her out and just puts her right on Allison's belly. And, and it's like, I knew immediately, like something's wrong, right? Uh, Anne was just like this dull gray color and just not moving at all. And so she wasn't breathing or anything. She wasn't crying. Like, you know, you know, you, you see in the movies, right? And it's like the kid's born. They're like, screaming and yelling. None of that. And so then like within a couple, it was probably two seconds, they take her away and take her to this corner. Or they like cut the cord, take her to the corner. And they're like doing CPR on her, like legit, like, like compressions and all that stuff. And we're just like, what just happened? And... You know, it took a while. I I, I want to say we were there, like sitting there for like thirty minutes or more um, while they're working on her. Eventually, they they get her breathing, and like with the help of like an oxygen bag and or whatever they call it, um, like the mask in the bag to help her breathe. Yeah, and then they have to transfer to this other room, and so I had to like leave Allison and go to this other room just to see what's going on. Long story short, they basically, you know, she wasn't. She wasn't breathing, so it was like a lack of blood and oxygen to her brain for some period of time. We don't really know why. We still don't know why. Maybe like a cord was around her neck or something like that, but we don't really know. They didn't really mention anything like that. So they end up putting her on this thing that's a relatively new protocol. They call it therapeutic hypothermia, right? Where they drop her body temperature by six degrees Fahrenheit, and they keep her that way for 72 hours straight. And so they put her on this thing and airlifted her by helicopter to this other hospital that can handle that type of stuff. And so then Allison never actually held her like beyond that like first couple seconds for like maybe four or five days um, because she was hooked up to tubes and all this, you know, breathing apparatus and, and she had electrodes on her head 
monitoring for seizure activity and things like that. And so, yeah, it was just like a very, very intense, not only way, not only for us, but like way for her to start her life, obviously, right? Basically, what happened, what, what, the result, I guess, or what came out of that is she has um, severe cerebral, cerebral palsy. So what that means is, so they can have a huge range, right? Um, some people have it and you would probably never know. Other people can't really do anything on their own. So she's more on that side of the spectrum. Like she can't, so she's two and a half, a little over two and a half. So usually kids by this point are like running around and starting to talk a lot and whatever, you know, those kind of things, or even starting to talk about going to preschool and stuff, right? And so she can't walk, she can't, she still can't crawl. She can't talk at all. She makes noises and she laughs um, and things like that. Um, but a lot of the things that typical kids do, like she just can't do and she might not ever do, right? She has trouble, trouble even just holding her head up, which is like something that like you and I don't even think about doing, right? Right, um, yeah. So yeah, so I write a lot about those stories, like different things that have happened. You know, I, I wrote about that first night, some things in the hospital, like, when she coded, meaning like she was basically not breathing again and they had to bring her back. That happened two different times. So within the first week. So it was just like a very, very, like the most intense thing I've ever gone through. Yeah. And just feeling like completely helpless, just like you can't help, you can't do anything to help the situation except try to be calm for like my wife, you know, or, you know, and be there for my, my daughter who like, it, it's interesting because it's, it's like, you don't even feel like you really know her yet because she's hooked up all this stuff and like, you know, has like an intubation tube in her mouth or whatever it is. Like you're not, we're not like able to hold her like a typical newborn for, you know, a good number of days. So yeah, so I write a lot about that to sort of, it's it sort of just understand what it means or, or to just process it and then yeah, to, to tell the story because so many, so many people didn't really know what happened. They sort of kind of heard things, you know, this is like family members or friends. They may have heard things from different people, but I used the writing as an opportunity to tell the story and have people sit in that with me and what it feels like because most people don't experience something like that. That's incredibly like, raw and authentic for you to share that. And I mean, it must be really tough to have missed out on those kind of first moments of bonding and spending time together yeah absolutely i mean we spent uh, i think it was almost exactly 30 days in the hospital right um and it's interesting because you kind of get you get used to it in a weird way um you know it's like your new reality but you feel so like isolated from the rest of the world you know and so then i was lucky enough to work at a job where they i just got all that time off i didn't have to do any work so I could just focus on my family, my daughter and whatnot. So, but then, you know, we ran into other things that like, you don't think about like, like um, with our, with my stepdaughter who was, I guess, eight at the time, you know, and it's like, when do we let her come visit? Cause it's like, we don't want to freak her out either. Like she knows something's up, but at what point do we go, okay, it's, it's okay for her to come, come see her sister, you know? And it was her first sibling. Um, she now has a brother, but um, on, on her dad's side, but, that, but he's younger. Yeah, so that's that was like even things like that are difficult. And then the other part, and then part of the re I would say part of the reason I'm writing it is, is like I said, to have so other people can kind of understand as much as they can, like through the writing. 
of what it what it feels like to go through that and how and how and to maybe like um I don't know if it's sympathized or empathized, one of those, <laughs> with what I went through or what we went through. Um, and family members like who who are were close with, like my parents and whatnot, like they they know, but they don't really know. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like you don't, like we felt like, uh, Allison and I felt like, that's my wife, Allison. Uh, we felt like in a way, like we were two like soldiers that were at war in the trenches together. And it's like, you don't really know what that's like unless you've been there, yeah. right? So it's really, yeah. so I, I, I've tried my best to make it so that my writing, you feel like you're in it with me. Um, and I write it purposely in a way that's like, usually those type of stories I'll write first person, present tense, like you're, it's happening, right? As you're reading it. At first I wrote it past tense. And, and I, I don't, I think I was writing, reading some other book that I really liked, did that. And I was like, let me try that. And I just on a whim did that. I don't think I've ever written anything like that before, by the way. I was just like, let's try it. And it, it felt it, it felt like it gave it that extra intensity, right? And of like, okay, now the reader can just sit there with me and it, and I could go into like what my train of thought was in a given moment or what was said or whatnot, you know? And, and what has the response been to your writing? Because, you know, I've, I've read your writing. I think it's incredible, honestly. Whenever I've read it, it's been so much more moving than I would have ever anticipated. Kind of wild, so I'd love to know what the response is. And also, I'd be curious to know, one of the things I remember when I first read your stuff is I was, and I was thinking, it made me develop at least even the most minor understanding of what, what you'd gone through. I feel like there are probably parents around the country, around the world, who might have also had similar situations with their child's health, or even just other parents who have children with cerebral palsy. Um, I'd love to know if you, you connect with those kind of people as well, because it's such an intimate, so slightly specific thing that I'm sure those other soldiers, those other moms and dads around the, the country who might feel like they're alone might be able to connect with you in a way that no one else can. Yeah, that's that's been the most rewarding part of doing it, um, yeah. is the, the feedback I've gotten from people I know, but then also just random people I've never met, right? There was actually just recently, last month, a woman reached out to me and she commented on some post that was like, I think I, I published in November or something. And it was like a comment on a post like a couple of months old, seemed odd. And so I read it and it was, um, well, at first I thought it was a guy because the name Sam, but then I ended up, we had this whole email back and forth and I realized, oh, it's the mom. But she was literally in the hospital still um, in the, in the uh, with a neonatal, neonatal, I can't say it, NICU for short, the intensive care unit for kids, uh, newborns. She's still in there, right? Uh, I think they just got discharged maybe like three, four days ago, something like that, um, from the hospital. Uh, but they were in there for nearly a month. Uh, and we had a, we've had a whole email correspondence since. You know, her just asking different questions because her son, had, it sounded like a very, very similar start to his life. And then there's been a couple others too. But yeah, that's been incredible. And then even people who don't have kids just reaching out saying, like that was really powerful or moving and, and just feeling, you know, sitting with me in that moment for, you know, through yeah. my writing. Uh, so that, that's been, that's been the most rewarding part of it. And that's kind of what I, in some ways has kept me going. I think I would have kept going regardless, but I think, I think that makes it all the more better, right? Moving people in some way. It's kind of funny because some people will say like, oh man, I, I was crying when I was reading it. I'm like, well, sorry to make you cry, but 
it's good to hear that it like had an effect on you. Yeah. You know? So that's been incredible. And like I said, not even just from people I know. At first, it was obviously people I know more, but but there were some people that I hadn't talked to like probably since high school, you know. But we're like friends on Facebook, would never really interact that much, and they were just saying like, "Oh my God, Lyle, your writing's so good," or you know, whatever. Something was so relatable. Or there was a woman. There's a woman I went to high school with who has a special needs son who yeah. is he's like a teenager. I think he's like 18 by now, but he still has to live at home because she has to help take care of him. Like, I, I didn't know that. So yeah, so it's been interesting. And then connecting with other folks just in different communities to try to like, mostly I was joining them to learn more and to share my writing and stuff like that and see if it resonated with folks. And so I've met some cool people that way too. Was it was it important for you to express it, you know, the reality of what happened to you kind of almost to set the record straight of exactly, you know, this is what happened, I'm reclaiming power on, on this situation, which was unexpected. Yeah, there's definitely part of it. That's part of it. What's difficult when you go through something like this is it's really hard for people to relate to it and it's and it can be uncomfortable for them right i remember going to back to work and i worked with guys that have kids and and he would say something like um m M would be struggling with something like sleep the sleep's a hard issue i I think in general kids who have cerebral palsy you know i'd be like haggard because I had gotten like barely any sleep or whatever and I'm at work and I'm trying I'm just like sort of venting or just talking about it and then it's like someone goes oh yeah we had a problem with with so-and-so and and she was that age and and it's like guys it's not the same you know it's so hard to like make people realize that it's like I, I, I remember one of the pieces like I know Anthony and I were in a writing workshop together and one of them that I got edited there I had this whole rant about that where where it was like you know, someone like saying, oh, so-and-so had problems sleeping at that age too. And you go, oh, really? Like, did you have to go in and like give give her meds with it to, through a feeding tube on her belly in the middle of the night? Do you hope, you just hope that she sleeps like another few hours? You know, because that's what we do. I go in every night, 1130-ish, and I have to hook up a little tube to her, to this thing on her belly and and uh, give her some medicine to try to hopefully get her through the night more. Because um, if she wakes up, she's up for at least an hour, if not more because it's really hard for her to just stop her body from moving. So part of it was, well, part of it was I had been gone dark basically on social media for a while. And so people who knew me or knew our family were, you know, maybe talking, you know, amongst themselves or whatever here and there, kind of like you said, the rumor mill, which is a funny way of putting it, but it's sort of true, you know, whether it's like, yeah, like extended family or friends or whatever, who knows what they actually knew. Right. Um, So, Part of it was, yeah, like wanting to tell that, tell the story. And it's funny you say set the record straight. I don't know if it's so much that or if it's so much just like wanting to be understood, you know? Yeah. Wanting wanting people to to understand that, like, especially people that know me and know Allison, we're like very. <laughs> I don't know. Let's joke. I'm like I'm like the most like average white guy you could imagine, right? Like, <laughs> I'm just like such a typical white guy. I grew up in like you know, a a nice suburb and like my parents are still together. I've had like a a lot of like things working for me as far as like privilege in my life. Right. And then to, but then even like people like us who are like very healthy and like, you know, we did everything the right way. Like it can, something like this can still happen to us. Uh, And it's totally just like a freak occurrence, Mm. you know? Um, And, but we have to deal with the fallout from it um, and somehow carry on. Uh, There's a, 
there's a phrase that people say sometimes that at some point I'm going to write about, but I mean, my parents have even said it to me. They're just, it's like, God, I don't know how you guys do it. And it's like, well, it's like, we don't really have a choice. Like you get thrust into the situation. You're in this club, this like exclusive club that you never wanted to join. I had no concept of it. I mean, I, I mean, I know obviously like people are disabled and things like that. Family. I've known some people have gone through some things, but I've never like known it on this like deep of a level or like been that close to anyone. Right. And it's like this whole other world and it can feel very isolating. You could just like just walking through like an airport with my daughter in, in a, we have this like fancy stroller thing that, I mean, it's not, it doesn't really look like a wheelchair, but it basically doesn't look like a normal stroller either. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So it's pretty obvious that something's going on. And then like, we'll be feeding her with this big syringe, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and it, you get stares and it's so you, it's you feel you feel isolated in that sense and um uh and so part of it's writing in reaction to that and going yeah. like wanting to tell the story and go and and that the other thing is there's people who write about it and but uh and it's oftentimes moms there's a lot more moms that write about this in oh, interesting. Yeah. but i also i didn't want to just write about it i wanted to write about it in a creative and compelling way like us and, and and so it's been it's funny because it's it can be hard to write about this stuff but it's also like sometimes i'm almost like taking myself out of this is really weird to say but i'll be like for example when i wrote this story about the night she was born like i was writing it like as things happen you know what was going on in my head and times and stuff like that but even though it's like i'm digging into like pictures that I took and things to try to remember the timeline and stuff like that it's a creative endeavor at the same time though so right and I'm like I'm trying to create the best story or like like writing work that I can to tell that right so that people read it and they're engaged and they're they're wanting to continue reading whereas I think it could be very easy to do it in a way where it's just like, like, like unloading stuff, like getting it off my chest and it can be like sort of like all over the place. Right. But I'm like, how do I do this in a way where people can be moved by it and not just, you know, go, Oh, I learned something interesting about what it's like to be a special needs parent. You know, it's like, no, this is this like visceral like experience when you read it. That's what I go for at least. No, I mean, I've definitely read it and it definitely is that compelling. I guess the other thing that's really interesting is this kind of, um, you know, you described this scene in the airport when, you know, you're feeding her and you got you feel like people are looking and it's kind of isolating experience, right? And I, I guess there's this, there's something interesting that you will have experienced going into, okay, what is it going to be like to be a father? And, you know, mm-hmm. going through an airport with your daughter or your son and what that experience looks like. And then, you know, the, the change in the reality of just the circumstances you're in now, um, but what's it been like to kind of deal with kind of perceptions of parenthood against kind of the reality of, of how you are a parent now? Yeah, that's, that, that probably took the longest to, um, I don't even know if I could say I've gotten over it, you know, but like, cause there's so many things that remind you of, of things, you know, so like, I, I mean, anyone who's about to become a parent can relate to this or, or who has gone through that experience. You have this like, visions of like what things will be like right so i'm a huge golf nerd and i always thought this like oh it'd be awesome to like teach her how to play golf and we could go play together and like 
that's something we could do for like the rest of my life, you know, uh, with, with, if, if, as long as the kid's into it, right? My stepdaughter is definitely not into it. <laughs> I've tried. Once, you know, basically in, in a split second, all that went out the window, right? Um, when she was born, you know, and, and maybe at some point we could like enjoy watching it on TV or something together, but it's going to be a lot different, right? Even just like thinking of, like, I remember having thoughts of like her just like running around with friends or something or like playing with her big sister or whatever it may be. Um, and that's all different now. So not only that though, but then being around other kids or, you know, families where they have kids around her age, like that's really difficult because you, it's just like hits you like a ton of bricks, how different it is. Um, so we did that at one point there was like, um, a couple that we liked that were in this like birthing class with us. Right. And they live in town here and they had their son around the same time. I think maybe it was like a month apart or something. Uh, and I want to say they were, the kids were like nine months old or something like that. And we got together, we went to their house for dinner or something or lunch. We walk in and he's sitting up on his own and he's like playing with a toy or whatever. And it's like, Oh, like even just that, like within the first minute of being there, it was like, oh, okay, like, this is, like, Emily's not even close to that, you know, she still can't sit up on her own and do that, you know, and she's, you know, now over two and a half years old, and so it was, like, moments like that where you go, man, it, like, hits you hard, like, this is so different, and, you know, just all the different things that we've had to do, right, like, so she gets fed 100% by feeding tube, right, she didn't, well, she eats a little, little, little tiny bit by mouth right now. We're working on it, but it's taken this long to get to that point where it's safe to do that. Um, and then, you know, you see a kid like at a birthday party and he's like diving into cake or whatever. And you're like, man, you know, it's like all these things that, a, you know, a, a parent of a typical child just don't even think about. I have a piece that uh, I'm working on that I'm going to probably um, submit somewhere like outside of my newsletter but it's about it's about um an experience that we had at an airport <laughs> we went to las vegas for my brother and my dad's birthday they had in september so we, this was like september of like 2019 yeah uh so m was like a little over a year old and so it was our first big trip and we flew out there so her first i guess she took a she took a flight you know helicopter the day she was born but we won't count that so it was her first flight in a plane uh, and so trip went out out there went great we hung out there for a few days and we're coming home and we're in the airport and we're feeding her I'm holding her like in my arm like this right and uh, we're walking up to the TSA agent and all of a sudden it's like her little tube that was supposed to be in her belly is like in my hand and I was like shit you know so I go Allison and she's, she just looks at me and goes, like, oh, oh, my God, <laughs> what are we going to do here? So we, like, rush to the back of the, like, you know, um, you know, we wait in line. Luckily, there wasn't a ton of people. We rush to the back, put her on the ground, and we're trying to put this thing back in. And it's just not going in. Um, it's basically, like, to, to describe it, it's like she has a hole in her belly, right? It goes straight into her stomach. Um, and I always joke that it's her first piercing, right? Because uh, it's basically <laughs> like, it's like having a piercing. We can like move it all around, just like if you had an earring, you can move it all around, doesn't hurt or anything, you know? Uh, it, but, you know, it came out and has like a little balloon that's supposed to keep it in there that's filled with water, right? And, and 
somehow it all came out and the balloon was still inflated. I don't even know how it happened. Um, so, you know, we have to like take all that out and then we're trying to, basically you just try to shove it back in there with like some like lubricant stuff that you have in this pack. Uh, and it's like not going and not going. Um, and meanwhile, it's like, I'm sure everyone walking by just thinks we're like changing their diaper or something, you know, uh, they have no idea like the kind of the gravity of what's going on, you know, because, um, you know, if you keep it open too long, it'll close up, right? And that's not good because it's, you'd have to have any surgery done or whatever to fix it. And so I remember we got through the security and we were like, you know, let's, let's, um, see if there's first aid or something. And uh, I remember I went to the bathroom and when I was in the bathroom, there was like this little boy walked through and he was like touching the sink and like, you know, just like, and the dad was like super annoyed, just like couldn't contain this kid. Just like, let's just walk back to the, to the stall in the bathroom and like do, do what we got to do here, buddy. You know, and his kid's like wanting to touch everything. And like, you know, and it's like in that sort of moment, I just go like, damn, like, like, Emily might not ever do something like that, you know? Meanwhile, this dad is just like super annoyed and it's probably something that he'll look back at as some like mundane moment in his life or he'll never even remember, right? Mm -hmm. But for me, it was like <clears throat> one of those moments where it just hit me hard, like how different. I'm like, meanwhile, my daughter's out, her feeding tube came out and now we have to like, we had like paramedics on the way to help out. And anyway, so that was kind of like another one of those moments where it hit me. The other funny thing about that story is my, Brother's a paramedic in Las Vegas. Yeah, so we had to stay an extra day, but it all ended up fine. We got it back in, but yeah, it was it was kind of one of those moments where it hit you, just like how different things are for us, you know? Yeah. I, I think that when you tell these stories, and you obviously, you're very good at, by the way, just like saying them as well. Like, I don't know if you ever thought about <laughs> recording podcasts, but like whether you're <laughs> writing stories like this or whether you're telling stories like this, I think um, there probably are parents all around the world who, don't have the same um, ability to communicate them, you know? So like people who have similar stories where, but they, they don't feel comfortable writing or they don't, they may not be uh, a great speaker or writer. And I think sometimes that may, might leave them without a voice that in some ways maybe you can yeah. fill that, that void. Where like, if I'm a parent who doesn't feel comfortable in writing this stuff, or maybe I'm just not, not it's on my skill set, I feel like they, they'd probably look to your stories, uh, whether you're telling them out loud or whether you're writing them, as a way to feel like they have a voice of, of someone that understands um, and relates to what they're going through in a way that you're really able to communicate it well. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. I mean, I even think about like that story I was just telling you about, and I, I've written it at least the first few drafts, a couple drafts, but um, <clears throat> my wife, like I was asking her like, hey, because I'm always curious when it's something where both of us were there, yeah. kind of her take on things, right? Yeah. Um, and in this case, I remember when I first brought it up, she was like, I don't even want to think about it. You know, uh, it was like one of those, like a day where she's like, you know, just not wanting to go there. And I can respect that. And I imagine, I imagine, you know, she was just going to be reading it and like my take on it. Right. Um, whereas someone who's like going to sit down and actually write this out, I, I totally understand why some people wouldn't want to do it. Um, yeah. You know, and I almost look like at it kind of like, I've heard a couple of people use this word, which I think is interesting, where I've shared something <clears throat> and then someone calls it like generous, which I would, I remember the first time someone said that and I was kind of surprised by that word. And, but it kind of makes sense when you think about it, right? It's like, I spend a lot of time 
trying to make these stories, uh, you know, not just to tell the story, because a lot of people can tell stories really terribly. I'm not saying I'm like the best at it. I'm still trying to get really a lot better at it, but um, but it takes a long time, right? To get it to where you want it and to like get people to feel a certain way or, you know, surprise them in, in ways that aren't just like this crazy intense thing happened to me. Maybe it's a train of thought I had at the time or, um, you know, like how it changed me in some way, some event, right? Um, but, it is an interesting word. Think about it. I've thought about that a bunch of times where I've, enough people have said it where I go, that's interesting. Cause it is like you spend a lot of time and you're, and you're taking a lot of mental energy and going, kind of like reliving these moments in a lot of ways uh, and to get it down on paper. So it is, there is a generosity to it, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I hope to find lots more people that go, maybe even they could share this with their family or friends and say, this is, like not the same situation I went through, but it really like resonates, you know, That's but not even just that, but it also like, I'm even thinking of just like typical parents, you know, and like you think of like a, a typical parent who, who has like a kid that's freaking out in an airport or something. <laughs> and you feel that same thing, right. Where you're just like, I, you know, everyone's staring at us and like, I can't, you know, my kid's freaking out and I can't do anything, you know, or they're crying or whatever it is. Um, so it's a similar feeling. It's just my my story was just like a more intense version of that, right? Um, yeah. So I think it can be relatable to parents generally. Um, and then the other thing I do, I try to do is relate things back to just like universal, like human emotions and feelings and things, right? So that even, I don't think either of you guys have kids, but you've at least you've read my stuff and like, but, so, but you know, it's like, uh, it's not, just for like people who've had kids in that way you know it's like here's a here's a unique experience and i mean I can write no, about no, it in a compelling way it could have a bigger audience you know? yeah i mean i'm definitely not a father um but definitely <laughs> have enjoyed it um, that you know so, of you mean? <laughs> yeah so far so I, I mean i was i was planning on going into kind of like the, the third transitional moment which was you know when you, you you really doubled down on writing in 2020 but Honestly, I, I feel like it's been really intertwined with your relationship mm -hmm. with uh, your daughter, Em, um, and, and we've kind of, you know, really explored it. So maybe what we'd typically do is allow uh, one of our guests to have a 60-second time to pitch what they're writing about, um, you know, what they're, what they're interested in, blah, 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 whatever it might be. So, Lal, over to you. You've got 60 seconds. What do you <laughs> want to talk about? Where should people find it? Yeah, so... I'd love if people will come and join the mailing list at lyle.substack.blog or not, what did I just say? Lyle.blog. You can go to either lyle.blog or lyle.substack.com yeah. um, and you can sign up there and, you know, come for human stories about not just, not just parenting a kid with special needs, but, um, you know, just the struggles of life and, you know, thinking through just, what it means to be here in the world and the struggles and how we deal with those and um you know telling telling those like personal essays uh things that have happened to me but i was i always like to think of it as things that happened for me so that i can now write about them and tell them to the world um so yeah come join me awesome um so i mean honestly i i would describe your writing in terms of what you share but also just the the amount of thought that you put into what you share as definitely very generous. Um, 
and I think it's definitely worth checking out. It's really compelling. Um, so we've got two questions that we'll ask every single guest to close. Um, <laughs> the first one is a complete curveball, and Anthony is going to handle this okay. one. Okay, um, so, so Lyle, <laughs> uh, pretty important question here. Uh, what's your favorite rom-com? My favorite rom-com? Oh my god. I really don't like rom-coms. <laughs> I can't even think of one we right now. We have to so force an answer from you. If I'm afraid, Kalal, like it, it could lean more romantic. It could lean more comedy. It doesn't have to be like a like you know traditional rom-com. Yeah. Maybe it's a romance film. I don't know. Maybe it's just straight up comedy. I mean, film. honestly, yeah. I feel like there's one, and I can't think of the name of it right now, with like Paul Rudd in it. I'm thinking of. Uh, now I'm thinking of Paul Rudd, but I'm thinking of that movie, Wet Hot American Summer. You ever That's see that movie? a great film. Yeah, that could, that works. I mean, That's close enough. That works? Okay. Yeah. Wet that Hot American was, that, Summer. That was so funny. So, so we, when we were on the road, this leads me to a story. So we were on the road Good in fun. our van and um, we had rigged up, I had this like TV that was like a, a VCR TV combo, right? I had it in my dorm room when I first went to school at, uh, to UCSB. And we rigged it up so that we could, uh, with like a power inverter in our van, so we could hook it up to the to the cigarette lighter power, right? Mm -hmm. So we could watch movies and stuff. And I remember we were on the road somewhere, I don't remember where, but our um, singer's girlfriend mailed him like a little like care package or whatever. And in the care package was this movie, Wet Hot American Summer. and none of us knew what it was we hadn't heard of it We're like what the hell is this right and we put it on and like i remember i still vividly remember watching it for the first time and we just were losing it constantly it was so hilarious and paul rudd's like my favorite character in that movie because he's just like such an idiot but <laughs> but like he has some of my favorite lines but um yeah that was a great movie awesome yeah wow, great, that's, great to bring what, back what memories a, yeah what a good experience watching it um <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so Wet Hot American Summer is now final answered. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, cool. The other one is, um, so you're sitting across the table from an 18-year-old Lyle. What advice do you give yourself? Oh, uh, that's good. Um, so I've, I've thought about this before because it comes up a lot, or like people write about it a lot. Um, quick aside, I think it would be interesting also to flip that and go like, what, what would 18 year old self tell me now? Right. Ooh, um, I right? love it. Okay. Do you want, wait, do you want to do both? Can you do both? Yeah, let's do both. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I think, I think they might be similar. Uh, right. Um, because one thing I thought, maybe not 18 year old, maybe I'm thinking of like a little bit later, but anyway, I think the one thing that my younger self did, that I'm just starting to do again is be just being creative and sharing it. Right. Um, at that time I was in, you know, playing music and in the band and things like that. But at one point, you know, the band kind of fizzles out or I move on to a new band and that sort of fizzles out. And then I don't do anything creative for quite a while. Cause it's just like paying the bills and like, you know, building a career or whatever. I guess you know, I was playing poker and stuff. In some ways, that was creative. But you know, it's like I wasn't doing any. I wasn't doing any creative work and sharing it with people. Um, and so then, just getting back into writing now, it, it's it's 
being creative. Like I said, with my writing, I'm trying to, I'm not just trying to like tell the story. I'm trying to tell it really well and get better at telling stories. Um, and, you know, but, but for so long, I hadn't done any of that. Right. So I would tell my younger self, I would say, don't stop, just keep doing something, right. Put it, put it out there, whatever it may be. I mean, it could be making YouTube videos or whatever. It doesn't matter. Right. Just do something. Um, because I think I realize now, especially doing it the last, it hasn't even been a year. It's like, that's what I was missing for so long. I got into startups and things like that. And I, and it was trying to fill that void of wanting to create something and put it out in the world. Right. Um, and now I realize that, you know, <laughs> well, it took me now I'm what, like 43, you know, <laughs> so it took me a while, yeah. but yeah, but I think, I think, you know, if you took me back a couple of years and my younger self was talking to that person, you'd be like, what are you doing? Like create something, you know, like, I don't care, like make some music, do something, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So it'd be very similar advice, I think, ironically. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Lala, it's been awesome to have you on. So thank you so much for giving some of your time to us. Absolutely. It was great fun. <laughs>